Thank you for letting me open the Word and preach to you this morning. So let's get right to that. Uh, Psalm 21 is where we'll be this morning. Psalm 21, and I hear from uh, your pastors that you are going through the Psalms, which is it's a blessing. The Psalms are great, aren't they? Oh, I love the way Calvin says they, they give voice to the soul. So many times in my life they've been such a big encouragement to me. And um, moments of strength, rebuke, <laughs> all at once. So praying that we get some of that this morning. And if you're unfamiliar with where the Psalms are, it's pretty much in the middle of your Bible. Open it up if you go too far, maybe go back to left a little bit, but Proverbs and Ecclesiastes will be after. But Psalm 21 is where we'll be this morning. This is God's holy and inerrant word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asks life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge together as your people that you are holy, holy, holy. You are free from every sin and evil and filth in this world, but you are also exalted, transcendent and glorious above us. As we meditate and sing about your holiness and your perfection, we quickly realize that we have fallen short of your glory. We also acknowledge that we have no ability, potential ability to obey, to follow what you've called us to, and we are rightly unrighteous and under your judgment in and of ourselves. But Lord, we also rejoice knowing that it's not our strength or ability that can get us to you, but you have graciously sent your Son to live the life that we failed to live, to die on the cross, to pay for the sin that we've committed, and to raise from the grave, conquering sin and death, 
to give eternal life to all those who have faith. Father, we are here to celebrate that, to rejoice in that hope this morning. And we are here to celebrate our King. I pray as we get a glimpse of Him in Psalm 21 this morning, that we would rejoice, we would worship, we would repent, and we would praise and proclaim Your Word wherever You call us. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, we were headed to the beach to get out of that heat I was talking about uh, on an elder retreat. And I had the privilege of riding in the car with one of the missionaries that we have since sent out, a guy named Rob. Um, we had served together in ministry for a long time. And um, this was a couple years ago, so he's already on the mission field. But at this moment on this retreat, we were just preparing to send him out. So he was, he was really kind of struggling with some things, contemplating all the losses that might take place in just a few weeks as we sent his family off. Things that would change, things that he would lose, but he was also very excited. Excited to finally get to the work that he'd been planning for and training for. And so it was really bittersweet for him as he thought about these things, and also for us as elders and and deacons as we said goodbye to our brother and just trusted the Lord for what he would do with him. Well, we were driving through the the glorious hills of Taft in Maricopa um, out to the beach, and we were talking, and, and Rob just started talking about his old job. He worked in the oil field for about um, eight to ten years, and he, he started talking about the life he, he lived there, the people he met, and uh, describing how he loved the ministry he was able to do there, and, and even the flexibility the job gave him to do more ministry. And I could really tell as he was describing his old job, and he, he was really starting to talk about it like he was going to miss it. And I I just kind of, there was a pause in the conversation, and I didn't think too hard about this. I asked kind of an insensitive question, but uh, I stopped and said, Rob, do you, do you think that, you ever feel a little crazy for leaving your job, leaving this life to go to the mission field? And I, I really expected him to say, no, nah, no way. I mean, this is just a job. We're just leaving a house. It's a, it's a house, but it's just a building. My family's going with me. You know, I'll never look back. But I think, I don't know if it just caught him off guard, but he paused for a while and, and thought about it and said, do I ever feel crazy for leaving my, my life here? Yeah, I do. I know I can get my job back in a heartbeat. My wife could get hers back even faster. I know we could, we could buy a house in, in Bakersfield, serve at a church we love. Um, do great ministry there and be comfortable and happy and, and honor God in that place. But then he stopped and he said, but Russ, what else can I do? This world needs Jesus and I can go. I have to trust in the sovereign plan of my king. I was so struck by those words. I, I haven't forgotten them and they've been a source of encouragement for me even over these last couple of years, as I've thought to pray for them, and as I continue to battle struggles in my own life. And I wonder here this morning, I barely met some of you, but have you ever felt like that? Have you ever faced challenges or loss in this world or, or difficulty because of just this fallen world or sin or, or life in general where you felt insufficient? Where you didn't know how you'd be faithful? Have you ever started to count the cost to obey Jesus and just start to feel like it was too much to bear? 
Maybe some of you are even where this missionary was and considering, how do I be faithful to honor God among the nations? And how do I do this? And what's it going to cost? How, how is my life going to change? I may not know you and what your struggles are, but I know that we live in a broken and fallen world because of sin. And I know that even if you're not struggling right now, if you seek to follow Jesus, you will. And that struggle and that sin can even lead us almost to the breaking point. But for those of us that trust in Christ, even in the midst of this broken and fallen world, we can have hope. We can grieve as those with joy because we have a great and sovereign king, don't we? And that's the hope I want to remind you of this morning. That's the hope that sustains us as believers. And that's the hope that Psalm 21 will help us find. So let's read Psalm 21 together as we look through this. Let's start in the superscript, the uh, first few words above the verse there. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. Now, I'm so fortunate to be able to preach a psalm to you while you're already in the psalms because you'll be familiar with how the psalms work. And as this psalm says, and in many other psalms, which I'm sure you've studied, it was written by David. But it wasn't just written by David, it's actually about David. And this is what makes this psalm very unique. This is actually what we call a royal psalm. And if you're wondering, there's only about ten of those throughout the Psalter. But they're very important psalms because royal psalms describe the ministry and the development of God's king. They, they celebrate and show all the king's victories and, and faithfulness, but they also show the king's struggles. And they show the king's difficulty, and they show how God shapes the king into a man that can follow him and help his people follow him. And so this is a royal psalm that will remind us of God's great king. And it's actually very unique because it follows another royal psalm. This is the only time this happens throughout the whole Psalter, where Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are both about God's king. And Psalm 20 is very unique because it's a prayer from the people about the king before the battle. It's asking God to preserve this king, to give this king victory, and to be with this king as he goes into battle. And then Psalm 21 is looking back after the battle and rejoicing in the victory that God gave that king. And so we are in that that last sense where we're looking back at this great victory and i hope as already you've seen in this description is that we when we talk about the king god's king we do talk about david don't we i mean second samuel 7 david was given a great promise from god he was promised that his offspring that his line would never diminish that someone from his family would sit on god's throne forever and rule god's people and so david is that king but also, we know from another psalm, Psalm 2, there is another king. Hope you guys have studied Psalm 2. If you haven't, I, I give that to you for homework tonight. It's a great psalm. And I'm sure Nathan will get to it eventually if he hasn't already. But this psalm is about God's king where the rulers and the nations, they fight for power. They battle and they wage war among themselves. And God laughs. Laughs at their arrogance. Laughs at them seeking power. And God establishes his king. On Zion's hill. He gives his king the great promises and preserves his king forever. 
And so we have to keep those two ideas of the king. The king from Psalm 2 and the Davidic king in mind. But I hope even already you can see that David, although he was a great king, is not who this is ultimately about. And as no doubt your pastor has already trained you, as we read these psalms, we have to read them with Christian eyes. In the sense that we need to see David, but we also need to see through David to Jesus. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Davidic promises. As Hebrews says, this is just the shadow that we're studying. We want to look forward to the substance, to what God is really talking about. And Psalm 21 is so helpful there because this psalm describes a king that accomplished so much more than David. A king whose throne is higher than David. A king whose rule is longer lasting than David. And of course, a king which we worship as Christ our King. Now, as we go through this psalm, I want to remind you, it's actually split in half. There's, there's two parts to this. You probably even got a sense of that when we read it. And there was a drastic shift at verse 8. But the first part of the psalm, verses 1 through 7, is about the, the blessed king. The blessed king. And it's thanking God for the victory that he's given this king. And talking about all the blessings that have come because of that victory. And then the second half of the psalm, verses 8 through 13, are about the victorious king. And it's looking forward to future victories that God would give this great king. Now as we talk about the blessed and the victorious king, my favorite part of the psalm is that it's actually bracketed. It's surrounded by two moments of joy. Let me show you those. Look at verse 1 with me. It starts and ends with joy. Look at verse 1 as it says, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. In your salvation or deliverance, how greatly he exalts. You see, this is a picture of the king celebrating. This is after the victory, after the war has been won. This is the victory lap for the king. He's excited that God showed up, that God was faithful, and he's rejoicing. But then check out the transformation that happens in verse 13. All the way to the bottom of the psalm. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. Same words as verse 1, but notice the change. We, that's the king's people, will sing and praise your power. Well, how do we get from verse 1, where the king is rejoicing in God, to where the people join him in verse 13, where they rejoice in God, where they are celebrating God's victory? What's the change that gets the people there? Well, actually, it's very simple. It's a recognition by the people of all that God has done and all that God will do through his king. That God's king is the fulfillment of the covenants. That God's king is a blessed blessed king and he's the source of blessing for the entire world. And as we look on that king this morning, I hope and I pray that no matter what you're going through this morning, what difficulty you may be struggling with, that as we gaze on Jesus and who He is, that this world, as the song says, will just fade away as we rejoice in His glory and grace. And I think this psalm will really help us rejoice in our blessed and victorious King. So let's dig into verse 2. Verse 2, we begin to see what's happening in this King's life and see the victory that we're talking about. Verse 2 says, You have given Him, the King, His heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. Now this can seem like a very simple, 
easy verse, but that pause there is so important. That word selah means to, to pause, to rest, to reflect. Because what's happening here is this, a, this is a picture of the king's trust in the Lord. To see that, we need to look back one chapter. So keep your finger in Psalm 21 and turn to Psalm 20. 20 verse 7. Now I want you to look at the prayers before the battle and see where this king's heart is. See how this king is preparing for battle and see how much different it is than the the kings and the rulers of this world. 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Isn't that beautiful? This king before the war is not measuring up his army, counting the enemy's army, trying to flex his muscles and trying to kind of measure if he can win this war. His trust and the people's trust is in the Lord. Because they know that's where the strength comes from. That's who ultimately will give them the victory. And so they pray. Go up to verse, verse 4 in Psalm 20. And here's what they pray. The people pray this for the king. May he grant your heart's desire... And fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And then look back at verse 20, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 2. Before the war, before the war, saying, Listen to this king, grant his heart's desire. And verse 2 says, What? You have given him his heart's desire. And if not, withheld the request of his lips. Oh, here's the glory in this verse. God listens to this king. God hears the prayers of this king. And surely that's David. We see David and his prayers all through the Psalms. And God was faithful to work in David's life to do many great things. But at this moment, we also need to see through David to Jesus too, don't we? Because Jesus himself had a glorious prayer life in this earth. We, we get glimpses throughout the gospel. He even teaches his disciples how to pray. There's one prayer in particular, though, where he's exalting in all that he's doing, and it's in John 17. I want to read it right now. I'll just remind you of a couple things that are in that prayer, because it's, it's long, but it's such a glorious prayer. Right before he's going to the cross, do you remember what Jesus prays for? Jesus prays to his Father, asking that he um, would be with his people one day. That the Father would protect and care for His people. That evil would not gain victory over them. And ultimately that the Father would sanctify His people. They would make them holy. And that they would be saved. Now I don't know about you. I need those prayers answered. I need those prayers answered more and more every single day. And it encourages me so much to know that God hears those prayers and is faithful to answer this king. But you you know what's even more encouraging? What's Jesus doing right now? Have you ever thought about that? As we, we praise, we sing, we read his word, we go to school, we parent, we work. As you're going about your daily routine, what is Jesus doing right now? The Bible teaches us that He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, praying for us. 
And he prays as our advocate. He argues our case. So when we sin and we fall, he brings evidence. And praise God, it's not our evidence. He brings his own righteousness, and he never loses a case. I've paid for that. They're justified. They're declared righteous. And he prays for us just like he prayed for Peter. Satan has been after you, Peter, but I've prayed for you, and you will be sustained. God prays for us. And what's more, in um, Romans 8, it says the Holy Spirit joins in and intercedes for us as well, even when we don't know what to pray. Have you ever been there where you, you just, you're on your knees and you're just thinking, I don't even know what to say. All I can get is help. And the Holy Spirit hears that and says, I know exactly what you mean by that. I know exactly what you need. And God answers those prayers. Robert Murray McShane, great Scottish preacher, says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And I would add that God answers those prayers because this is God's blessed King. And that blessing continues in verse 3. Verse 3 says, For you meet him with rich blessings. We can miss something very important of what happens in this verse. It seems so simple, but what's really going on here is if the king won this great victory, when the king would return back to town, his people would actually go out to meet him. They would go out to meet him and they'd welcome him into town in this great and glorious victory parade. They'd bring him in with all the celebration that they could muster. And in this verse, as the king is coming back in victory, who goes out to meet him? It says you, but who's the you? That's God. God goes out to meet him with rich blessings. He goes out and sets a crown of fine gold upon his head. Verse 3. He crowns him Lord of all. Gives him authority and honor to rule and to reign in his place. He's celebrating with this king. And God celebrates better than anybody else. God commands the celebration. He's honoring this king. And he gives this king all authority in heaven and earth. Does that sound familiar? As Jesus went to this earth, lived the life that we failed to live, went to the cross, paid for our sin, conquering sin and death and Satan forever. When he rose from the grave, as Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He was crowned Lord of all. He is God's blessed King here. And verse 4 says, He asked life of you, and you gave it to Him. Length of days forever and ever. Now this is the, the part of the psalm where we really start to see some distance between David and Jesus. I mean, David certainly was preserved in battle, wasn't he? Many great battles, many great victories for God, but David died. I mean, the, theoretically, we can go find his bones somewhere and dig him up. But Christ went to the grave and like any other king, rose never to die again. He was given length of days forever and ever. And verse 5 says, His glory is great through your salvation. 
splendor and majesty you bestow on him, just like we were seeing earlier. For you make him most blessed forever. There's our blessed king. Now these words, this most blessed forever, if you were to get a little bit more literal in that translation, the idea here is that you actually make him a source of blessing forever. Which makes perfect sense here because look, when the king wins the victory, even in our country, if the president wins a victory, it's not just the the president's victory, is it? When the king wins, the people also benefit from that victory. And the blessing that's given to the king trickles down to the people. And so not only is he blessed, but he becomes the source of blessing for everyone. And Christ's kingdom is the kingdom of this world. He's the source of blessing for everyone that would call upon the name of Jesus, no matter what corner of the earth you are in. I hope that sounds familiar. Genesis 22, the great promise given to Abraham says, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Jesus himself, when he comes to this world, and he's confronted with the Pharisees, he called out and said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Because he's recognizing that he is the promised son of Abraham. He is the one, the fulfillment of that promise. Even though David was in that line, Jesus is the one that fulfilled those promises in an ultimate way. And he becomes a blessing for all the world and a source of blessing for everyone. But that's not it. Look at verse 6. Second part of verse 6. You make him glad, or blessed again, with the joy of your presence. This verse is glorious. You can go even more literal and say, instead of you make him glad with your presence, it says literally, you make him glad before your face. I hope that reminds you of another verse too. The ironic blessing when it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Certainly, God's favor rested on David But we also have to remember that Christ had the Father's face turn away from Him in wrath first. That He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? To bear the penalty of all those who are cursed under sin. And through bearing the penalty of death, He rose again and the Father's face was turned back to Him in favor. And He was most blessed forever in the presence of His God. Oh, I hope that you can see that what's going on in this psalm. This king is someone more glorious than David because this king is the fulfillment of the promises from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, even Moses and Aaron, and even David himself. All those promises find their fulfillment in this king, which is why Paul in the New Testament says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. This king is the fulfillment of all that God was planning to do. Why is that? Look at verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord. I love this verse. I need this verse. Because unlike David, who, who was a blessed king, he sent many of those blessings away, didn't he? Like every prophet, like every man and woman that came before him and after him, 
Just like you and just like me, we have fallen short of the glory of God. But not this king. This king trusts the Lord. And the steadfast love, the covenant-keeping, unfailing, faithful love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Oh, isn't that great news? This king and this kingdom is not going anywhere. We live in a fragile world, don't we? We like to pretend it's not and buy insurance for our stuff and save up and pretend that, you know what, I'm, I got, got this under control. If anything happens, I'm okay. But if we study history, if we even pay attention in our own life or just turn on the news, this world's falling apart all the time, isn't it? In every kingdom, whether it's as big as Israel, every kingdom, whether it's as big as the United States, or even the little kingdoms that we create in our own, every kingdom will fall apart. Every kingdom will be shaken, except one. I hope and pray that your kingdom falls apart in this world, rather than before the judgment throne of God. And if God is so gracious to do that in your life, then you can repent and trust that you're not the king to trust in this king and this kingdom by faith, and you can enter into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And be a part of a people whose king rules and reigns forever in perfect righteousness and holiness and grace and love. That's the kingdom we're talking about this in this hymn. And I hope already as we've read this psalm, you've already begun to rejoice in this great king. Just in these small glimpses already, we can get a joy that the psalmist is wanting to bring us to. And you know what? In a lot of ways, sometimes I think many of us, including myself, would be fine if the psalm ended there. Right? It would be fine. We've been encouraged enough. We can use this and go on from our, our lives. But here's the thing. In God's sovereign plan, the way he worked through David, he recognized something that we forget. Jesus did win the battle. At the cross, he delivered us from the power of sin, but we're still in the presence of sin, aren't we? There are many more battles in this world, and there's an ultimate battle to come. So we need this king not to just win the first battle, but to keep on fighting to the end. And this psalm reminds us that this blessed king from his victory will also be God's victorious king. And that's what we see in verse 8. God's victorious king in verse 8. says this, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Isn't this amazing? After this victory, this great victory of this king, he doesn't sit down and and take a break. Sit down and rest. I'm sure he's earned it. He's like, no, I'm just getting started. And you know what? The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to expose those enemies. Did you notice the language here? He's going to find out those enemies. It implies that they're hidden, or at least not obvious, right? He's going to find them out. He's going to seek them out. And that's the way the Bible describes the work of evil and Satan in this world, isn't it? That he comes as an angel of light. That even in the church itself, we get wolves in sheep's clothing. That it's deceiving people. And even in our own hearts, we don't recognize evil, do we? But Jesus will go and fight all those enemies, all those hidden enemies, and he will bring them out with what? His right hand. Sorry, left-handers, the the right hand is the picture of power and strength in Scripture. It's the the fighting hand, the sword hand. So it's Jesus pulling these enemies out in all the strength that he has, and he's going to expose them. 
Oh, we need Jesus to do this so desperately because we can be masters of self-deception. We can get very good at hiding our own sin and rebellion or even not recognizing it, at excusing or trivializing or ignoring or pretending that we're in charge of our sin, that we can manage our sin just fine. But Jesus goes to war, not just against the the sinners out there, but goes to war even in our own hearts. And we call Him and ask Him to come in and dig deep and cut the sin even out of our own hearts. And that's exactly what Christ does here because He exposes those enemies. He brings them out into the light. And then in verse 9, He actually subdues those enemies. He takes them out. Look at these words in verse 9. And please, as we read this, Guard yourself from pulling back and from abandoning it halfway through because these words are harsh, but we need to hear them. Verse 9, you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. I don't know if that's as hard to hear as it is to read. This is a picture of almost hell itself, isn't it? This is a picture of the wrath and the fury of who? Is it the big bad God of the Old Testament that Jesus had to come save us from? No. This is a picture of the wrath and the fury of the King. This is the wrath and the fury of Jesus. I know we don't like to hear that. We, we like precious moments, Jesus, right? Where he's, he's hugging kids and, and welcoming sinners and, and so kind to people. But we have to have room for this Jesus in our Jesus portfolio. Because the last image of Jesus we get in Revelation is for the people in the world to call out for the rocks to come and crush them so they don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. And for Jesus himself to be in this white robe dipped in blood, treading the winepress of His wrath and His fury. Oh, it is Jesus meek and mild, the Lamb of God, but He'll return as the Lion of God to set everything right. Which is terrifying and also encouraging to His people. And that's what this verse will help us see. So how do we understand these things as believers? How do we understand language as set them on fire, swallow them up, kill off their offspring? Is that just old, ancient language that we can ignore or write off or just say, ah, you know, just skip that part? No, we need to understand this in light of all of Scripture. And what I think is going on here is this is actually pointing way back even to the very first promise in Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. But Genesis 3.15, in the middle of the fall, do you remember the promise? that was given as he's cursing the serpent to Adam and Eve. He said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. This is God announcing in this fallen world, there's going to be a battle between the people of Satan, the offspring of Satan, the people of evil in this world, and then the people of promise. The people of God. And this battle will rage on for generations and generations as these two families battle each other until what? The rest of that verse says, He shall bruise your head 
and you will bruise his heel. The seed of the woman will come, and Satan, you're going to hurt him, but he's going to crush you. He's going to, to rid you and, his, and your offspring from this earth. He's not just going to injure his enemies. He's going to destroy his enemies forever. Do you long for that day? As much as you can detest and hate the evil inside of yourself, do you long for the day when there's no more evil in this world? No more sin, no more rebellion, no more struggle when the first inclination of the heart is to please God, to glorify Him? No more battle, no more struggles. Your king isn't going to rest until that day comes. He's going to go and wage war against all his enemies, and he's going to take them out forever. Look at verse 11. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. They can make the best plans in the world. They can figure out how to survive for now. They're never going to make it. You know what? I don't want to take this verse and say, oh, no, that's just them out there. They devise mischief. They can invent evil. Isn't this a perfect description of our own hearts too? Inventors of evil. I'm constantly surprised at the evil that comes out of my heart. Sometimes I feel like I have things under control and then it just comes out. I'm like, where did that come from? It's my heart on display. And it's so good to know that that evil in my heart will be destroyed one day. But that's a painful process, isn't it? This reminds me of a a book I read by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Has anybody ever read The Great Divorce? A couple? Okay. Great book. book. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, this is one of his best. And there's a picture in this book, book. It's very metaphorical, but there's this man who's struggling with sin and evil. And the way that Lewis portrays it is that this man is this ghostly shadow, and there's this lizard on his shoulder. And the lizard is a picture of his sin. And it's whispering lies into his ears and deceiving him. And you can see this man hurting and struggling to believe these lies. And an angel comes up to this man. Comes up to him and says, can I kill it? And at first the man's like, no, I I need this. It's really important to me. Yeah, it's a bothersome thing, but I need to go. uh, I'll go somewhere else to get rid of it. And there's all these excuses. And the angel just keeps saying, can I kill it? Can I kill it? And finally the man reaches the point where he says, I'm miserable in this sin. Do whatever it takes. And as the angel reaches in to kill the lizard, the man yells, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And the angel says, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt, but I did say that I can kill it. And he does. He crushes the the lizard. The man actually rides in pain on the ground, but then the most amazing thing happens. The lizard is transformed into this horse, and the man actually rides off on the horse. This picture that God doesn't just destroy our sin, but he redeems us through that. And it's something more glorious than we would ever imagine. This is the process that our king is taking us through. This is what God is doing amidst the difficulties in our life and the struggles that we have. Our king is waging war in our soul and in this world to rid the evil in this world. In verse 13, or excuse me, verse 12 says, you will put them to flight. You'll run off every enemy. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Now I was thinking, I can't imagine a more graphic picture than this. I don't even think I've ever seen in a movie where 
someone's been shot in the face with a bow and arrow. And that you can see pretty much anything in a movie these days. But Hollywood will hold this one back. But we get the point here, though, right? This is not shooting to wound. This is shooting to kill. This is God taking an aim, a death blow at sin and evil from this world. There's no coming back from this. Wiping the enemies out for good. And as even the Father hung His bow up in the sky after the flood, saying, I will never flood this world again. This is a picture of God's King taking up that bow of wrath and destroying evil forever. Not with a flood, but a final judgment. Delivering His people from sin and evil forever. Sin and evil from within and from without. So how are we supposed to respond to this? How do we process this and and respond? Well, verse 13 helps us there. David helps us with this last verse. And we've already read it, but let's read it one more time. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Brothers and sisters, this is the only proper response to seeing God in all His glory. When you behold the face of God in Jesus Christ, the last thing that should be done is interesting. Or, I'm going to just write this down in my notes. It's to respond like Isaiah, I'm undone. To bow the heart and the knees in worship. To rejoice in this King because there's nowhere to run. The only thing to do is submit to Him, to trust Him. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're, you're reading this, thinking about this, going, you know what? It's, this is all ancient and old and, yeah, it's scary. But, and these are all just metaphors, right? This is no big deal. But, yeah, when do you use metaphors? When do you use this kind of descriptive language? When the thing you're describing is far worse than what really is going on here. I need to warn you, if you are here this morning and you are establishing your own kingdom if you're trusting in your own ability to to make it in this world, in your own righteousness before a holy God, you will be found out. Your kingdom will be exposed. And you will face a holy God in His wrath. And I beg you, before this King, as Psalm 2 says, not to see Him as just your judge, but to run to Him as your refuge. Because that is the only hope. In this world, that's the only way you'll find peace and be a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the only way you'll find forgiveness and joy and satisfaction in this world because it comes through Christ and not the sin of this world. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you have trust in the Lord. And you've experienced the difficulty in this world. And you're rejoicing in the celebration of the past victory, but you're struggling to, to find joy in the future victories. Brothers and sisters, trust in this King. Rejoice in this King. And be encouraged that the Father has answered the prayers of this King. Be encouraged that your Lord and Savior has all authority in heaven and earth. Be encouraged that your King has conquered Satan and sin and death forever on the cross. And He will come and deal a death blow to sin and Satan and death forever. Be encouraged that your King is the seed of the woman the offspring of Abraham, the promised Davidic king, and who will be the one that trusts in God, not just in 
light of us, but in our place. He's the one who's trusted God for us. And by faith in Him, His righteousness is given to us. We can be justified, adopted into the family of God because He is God's perfect King and died in our place. And He can save because He is the source of blessing for all those who would trust in Him. Oh, be encouraged by your King and worship Him. But don't let that worship be bottled up in this room. If you remember the Great Commission, when Jesus was given all authority in heaven and earth, when Jesus was exalted as the great King, what did He do? He told His disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. See, one of the problems with missions, one of the reasons why missions is so important to the church is as Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. And we like to think that God's like, ah, you know what, when we worship Him, you know what, Oh shucks, don't, don't make a big deal. But God's not saying that. When we worship Him, He's saying, louder. He's saying, you know what? It's, the problem is that it's not loud enough. And the problem is that there's not enough of you yet. So go out in this world. I have all authority in heaven and earth. Make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And do you remember the promise? This King will be with you forever. Be with you in the struggle, in the pain. Trust in this King. He is our only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for just the glimpse of Your Son this morning, the glimpse of this glorious King. Help us in moments of weakness, struggle and pain, when joy is hard to come by and when we fight this evil from within and also in this world, Lord, help us to not look inward, to not try to fix or manipulate what's going on in our own hearts and minds, but to look outward to Christ. Help us to trust in His finished work at the cross and to trust in His continued work to do war in and through us so that one day all Your people will stand holy before You. Let us rejoice that that day is coming and let us never lose heart that our King is in charge. We pray this in His blessed name. Amen. As you leave, let me leave you with this benediction. I hope as you hear it now, you can hear it in light of your King. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a blessed Lord's Day.